our sermon today will be taken from Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. This is the word of God. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he, took, so he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, and the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Jackie. There you go. All right. Friends, we're going to continue our series uh, through the life of Moses. So we've been taking a look at Exodus chapter 1 to 4, and we're going to continue probably till chapter 20 uh, to see about Moses and what we can learn from men. You think through a series of the life of Moses, you think, right, you learn more about Moses, which is true, you do, but I think what we learn more, as at least me, as we've studied through this book and through the life of Moses, we actually learn more about who God is and the way he's orchestrated circumstances and the way he interacts with Moses. And today's passage is no different. Through this interaction, we're going to learn a whole lot about who God is, okay? Just let me remind us of the quick context of what's going on. So God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, they're being enslaved by Egypt, and Moses who was an Israelite, was adopted into Pharaoh's family, and he grew up as an Egyptian prince, yet something in him still identifies with his people, with the Israelites. That's why when he saw an Egyptian soldier uh, abuse an Israelite, one of his people, he lost his temper, and he killed the soldier. I mean, you can imagine, right? A young prince, prideful, self-confident, self-reliant, boisterous, trained to think in terms of overpowering. So naturally, he saw a situation and a person he didn't like. What did he do? He killed him. And Pharaoh found out, and Pharaoh was angry. And surprisingly, the Israelites found out, and the Israelites lost their respect for Moses too. Perhaps it confirmed their suspicion that this kid who's lost his Jewish roots has in fact become a spoiled Egyptian tyrant, which perhaps he has. So Moses was driven out of Egypt, 
he wandered in the desert, ended up getting married, lived as a shepherd, a very lowly and undesirable career at the time for 40 years. And you know when it was that God appeared to Moses? You know when God called him and assigned him this outrageous task of redeeming Israel, God's people, out of the Egyptian slavery? God didn't come to Moses when Moses had a flourishing career as a prince. God didn't come to Moses when he was at the peak of his physical prowess. God didn't come to Moses when he was legally recorded as flawless. He's an ex-con at this point. God didn't come to Moses when he still had everybody's respect. God called Moses and commanded Moses to follow him and lead a whole people out of the grasp of a world-class military when he was an 80-year-old frail man with a basic career and has lost the respect of everyone because of his past. This is when God initiated and called Moses. What does this tell you about who God is? He's trying to show us a little bit about who he is. Moses saw it, and it changed his whole life trajectory, and I pray we see it too. There's at least three things we see about God here. One, he calls ordinary people. Two, he hates a rebellious heart. And three, he loves ordinary rebels. He calls ordinary people, he hates a rebellious heart, and he loves ordinary rebels. Point one, he calls ordinary people. See, in verse one, Moses is giving God all these reasons of why God shouldn't choose him. Look look at verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Now, Moses said, They won't believe me. Who's they here? The they is Israel. And this is interesting that Moses was not primarily scared that Egypt won't listen to him. Moses is primarily scared that Israel won't listen to him. So what did God do? Gave Moses three signs. The first one is in verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hands. So the snake is a symbol of Egyptian royalty, okay? Think about the cobra headdresses, the cobra amulets, right? God is saying through this sign that he has control and authority over Egypt, He'll catch Egypt by the tail. He'll defeat them. Moses does not need to worry. God is utmost powerful and sovereign after all. But there's another thing about this sign that shows the character of God. Notice what God used here to perform the miracle that will defeat Egypt. He used a shepherd's staff. Now, to be a shepherd back then was a basic, ordinary job, almost detestable even. There's not much honor to it. Now, why did God choose to use a shepherd's staff to perform the miracle? Why not do something more majestic to convince Moses? Why not pull an Avengers-like Bifrost beam, you know, that comes down from the heavens and lands like Thor on one knee and says, Moses, I choose you. He's the great I am. He could have done that. But instead, God has decided that using a shepherd's staff to perform his redemptive work communicates more about who he is than using an Avenger's Bifrost beam. He used something ordinary, something detestable, to accomplish his majestic redemption plan. Don't you see how this could be encouraging for somebody like Moses? 
Moses, I know you have all kinds of insecurities and fears and doubts of following me. I know you feel basic, detestable even, to answer my call and follow me. What you got there in your hand? An ordinary piece of wood? Let me show you a little bit of who I am by doing something incredible with it. What do you see about God here? And remember, he doesn't change. This is the way he works today. What do we see about God? Is that he does not call the competent. He rather calls those who realize their incompetence. And look, when our postmodern senses see and hear this about who God is, I think we'll find it both comforting and strange. Comforting because when we hear this, you know, God is saying that no one is too far from my reach. He's saying, no matter how unlikely of a candidate you find yourself to be, if I call you, even an 80-year-old ex-con, you will have the ability to follow me. And, and that's comforting. But it's also strange. Why is it strange? Because, okay, today, when we want to encourage or comfort somebody, right, we often go about it by building up their self-esteem, right? We say, you can do it, you know, you got it, you're capable, you're smart, you have what it takes, go for it. And that's not bad. Sometimes that's appropriate. But that's not what God said to Moses, is it? Why? Because if God said that to Moses, particularly about following him, it'd be cruel and deceitful. If, if God called Moses to obey him and then places him in front of Pharaoh and then whispers in his ears, you know, believe in yourself, you got this, go get him, buddy. That would be the cruelest thing he could ever do. Because you know what? He don't got this. <laughs> he don't. He doesn't. He doesn't have the personal strength to do it. Which is, I think, what happens to a lot of people that tries to follow Christ and do this Christian thing. They try to obey. They try to do God's commands. And they try to do this whole church thing. And they quickly realize they don't got this. They don't. And they end up being crushed or they slowly disintegrate, and many eventually run away from the church. But what did God whisper in Moses' ears? What was the point of the wooden staff? God encouraged Moses in a way that's completely countercultural. He called Moses to follow him, but he didn't whisper in his ears, you got this. God called Moses and said, I got this. I got this. And for some of us sitting here today, Perhaps the decision to respond to God's call to follow him feels as daunting as an 80-year-old shepherd facing a world-class army. You feel incompetent. You feel unworthy. You don't feel like this God thing is, 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 is you, right? The eternal creator wanting me to be in communion with him wants me to join in his kingdom work. That, it's, it's just not me. But here's the thing. What if it's not about you? What if it's about God making sure that we all know who the hero is? What if it's about God purposely choosing weak and ordinary things to accomplish his will? Look at the second sign, verse 6 to 8. What's Moses called to do? His hand was turned into a leprosy-like state, and then it was healed again. Moses has been called to go to broken Israel, represented by the leprous hand, and make them whole again by freeing them out of Egypt. And how is Moses going to do that? The last sign, verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on 
the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Now, now the, the first two signs was something done there in front of Moses, but the third sign was not actually done by Moses. It was to point to what? The plagues, right? The Nile becoming blood. It was to point to the plagues. God is saying, if, if they don't listen, I'm going to use you to do these amazing things. If they don't listen to you, the ordinary man, I'm going to use you, an ordinary man, to do bizarre things. But if you read the plagues, this is so interesting. You know what God did before each plague? You know what God did before he performed these unbelievable acts? He always told Moses to show off his shepherd's staff. Before the first plague, chapter 7, verse 15, this is what God said. Take in your hand the staff and strike the Nile. Then it was turned into blood. Before the second plague, chapter 8, verse 4, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers. And then the frogs came. And then before the third plague, chapter 8, verse 16, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth. And then the gnats came. Why the theatrics? God could have done that without the staff. Why tell a washed up old man to lift up a useless stick before accomplishing his great redemptive work? What's he telling Moses? What's he telling us? He's telling us, stop making excuses to not follow him based on who we are. It's not a valid reason. I'm too young to do something like this. I'm too old to start to change. I'm too inconsistent to commit. I'm too weak to be faithful. I'm too broken to start. What if God is the kind of God that calls and holds the weak? What if God is the kind of God that redeems the unworthy by his grace and calls the rebel in his kindness and holds the unfaithful by his might and mends the broken with his hand and endures in our laziness with his patience and perseveres through our immaturities with his compassion and sanctifies our impurities with his love and keeps us in the race through his will and at the end of the road crowns us with his glory so that the whole world would see that he and he alone deserves all power and honor and glory and majesty forever and ever. What if that's the purpose of our salvation? Moses was not scared to follow God because he had too little faith in himself. Moses was scared to follow God because he had too much faith in himself. He made it too much about him and not enough about God. We must stop throwing out our credentials as a reason of why we can't follow him. And in fact, we'll see those that lack credentials, okay, and, 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 and those lacking credentials are just smokescreen. We'll see the real reason of why Moses doesn't want to follow God in our second point. Let, let's go there. God hates a rebellious heart. Verse 10, Moses throws out more excuses. But Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since I've spoken to your servant but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Notice, this is the fourth excuse Moses has presented to God in this dialogue, okay? This, this has been a long conversation. This started in the beginning of chapter three. We're still in this conversation right now in the middle of chapter four. And in and, and chapter three, verse 11, Moses rejected God's call by saying, who am I? Who am I to follow you? And then in chapter three, verse 13, Moses rejected God's call by saying, who are you? Who, who are you that you're gonna do all these things? And in chapter four, verse one, in our passage that we read just now, Moses said, they're, they're not gonna believe me. And now in chapter four, verse 10, he said, I can't talk good. And look, 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 notice how patient God has been this whole time. Chapter three, verse 11, when Moses said, who am I? No way I can follow you. God said, it's okay. 
It's okay, I'll be with you. Chapter 3, verse 13, when, when he said, who are you that you're going to do all these things? And God said, I'm Yahweh, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's me. In chapter 4, verse 1, Moses said, I'm scared. They're, they're not going to believe me. And God was patient. He said, that's okay. Here are some signs you can do to where they'll believe you. And now, I can't talk good. <laughs> but even now, God was still patient. Don't you see this? It's okay, God says in verse 11. I gave man his mouth. And in case Moses was going to appeal to his old age and hearing and, and sight loss, God went ahead and, 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 and listed that out in verse 11. Who made man mute, deaf, and able to see? <laughs> Don't worry. Your, your old age is, is, is nothing to me. God was patient. He didn't shame Moses for asking questions. But you know when God got angry? Verse 13. When Moses said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. It's only now, a chapter and a half in the conversation, God's been so patient. It's only now, after Moses said, send someone else, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, it says. Why is that? What about this fifth excuse is different than the other four? What about this fifth reason made God's wrath kindle? Well, finally here, after that whole dance, here Moses finally reveals his true nature, the true reason of why he didn't want to follow God. And we finally see it's because, here it is, here's the reason, he just simply doesn't want to. Just send somebody else. See, the other four questions, there were reasonable questions with four reasonable answers. A dialogue is still possible. But the, this fifth one, there's no dialogue possible here. It's just simply, I don't want to do it. Send somebody else. God can't answer to that. Okay, if you're married... You'll definitely be able to relate to this analogy. And if you're not married, you can as well, because I think everyone's at least had one interaction that's like this, okay? Okay. <clears throat> okay, here's a scenario. The wife says, I don't know why I chose a wife. Please don't, just, you know. The wife says to the husband, hey, you know, let's go to my school reunion in Bogor. Bogor, for you, that's first time here uh, in Jakarta. Bogor is about a few hours south from, from where Jakarta is, Okay. Uh, let's go to my high school reunion in Bogor, and we're going to stay there overnight. All my friends will be there. It'll be fun. And the, hus and the husband says, oh, honey, you know, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to. It's just, oh, work has been so tough. I've been so stressed. And then the wife goes and says, oh, that's okay. We, we planned it accordingly to all of your guys' holidays. So we actually planned it three months from now. So it's when you're off of work, and, we, you know, you, you should be at a good spot. How thoughtful of you, the, the husband says, right? Oh, you know. But the kids, the kids, who's going to stay with the kids? We can't leave the kids for that long on their own. And the wife says, that's okay, honey. I've called my mom and dad, and they're actually so excited about taking the kids, you know, for that weekend. And the kids are excited to see them, and they have this whole day planned for them. You know, and the husband responds, oh, man, that, how, how sweet of them. <laughs> but, babe, you know, I've been trying to save money. You know, we've been wanting to purchase that car. We just don't have the finances to do this right now. And at this point, usually the wife would start to feel something, a feeling best described as suspicion. <laughs> that maybe, just maybe, all these excuses are just smokescreen. And at this point, usually the invisible detective hat comes on. And the wife says to herself, saving money, okay. And then she says, she tells him that, you know, 
Okay, that, that's okay, but I've actually planned this for a long time, and I've saved up all our eating out budget and our shopping budget to make room for this so that we can still purchase that car. Here, look at the Excel printout that I printed out for you. <laughs> and the husband goes, oh, this is excellent. Well done. Good work. This is good. But, babe, aren't you just bored of Bogor? Like... And the husband just continues to come up with more and more excuses, but little did he know, since excuse number four, the wife has already made it her life mission to answer all of his questions, <laughs> to peel all the layers, to blow off all the smokescreen, and expose what she thinks her husband's real reason of why he doesn't want to go is. And after an hour-long conversation, the husband finally admits it. He finally says, okay, all right, I'll be honest. The reason why is just, I just don't want to go, okay? I just don't want to go. There's no other excuse. There's no other reason. The wife walks off as a victor. The crowds cheer. The referee calls game. And the wife says, until our next match, honey and children, that is what marriage is. <laughs> I, knew, I, I know you know what I'm talking about. You do. Where it's just absolutely obvious that the questions someone throws at you or you throw at somebody else... It's just clearly smokescreen. God answered all of Moses' concerns with perfect patience and accuracy until his true nature and true reason was revealed, and it was simply just because he didn't want to do it. See, now here's the difference between God and that wife that put on her detective hat. God does not need a detective hat. God knew exactly the state of Moses' heart, before he even started the conversation. So then why write or go through this whole narrative in such a way that God's wrath was kindled only later in the conversation when God uh, already knew Moses' heart all along? Well, at least for two reasons. One, God wants to communicate that he's okay with questions. He loves questions. He welcomes them. His answers are found in his word. He will never demonize intellectual inquiries. Okay? Go at it. Ask him these questions. But two, this whole narrative was done to reveal what our true problem really is. And that's not intellectual curiosity. It's a good thing to be intellectually curious. Simply, our problem is that we have rebellious hearts. That was Moses' fault. That's what ultimately stopped him from following God. Not his credentials, not his intellect, this passage says. It was his heart. So a big part of preaching is trying to communicate hard things as sensitively as possible. And I'm really trying to do that here with this passage. And, I, and I, maybe I'm going to fail. I don't know. I'm really trying to work it in my mind. How can I sensitively preach this passage? But I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to say to us all that God said here to Moses without making us feel a little bit of what Moses felt. Just imagine what Moses felt here as God was kind of pushing in, right? Cornering him. What was he feeling? He probably felt pressured. He probably felt a little bit uncomfortable. He probably felt cornered, maybe a little bit discouraged and overwhelmed. And look, here's what God is saying in this part of the passage to Moses and to us. And I don't know how to say it without maybe us feeling a little bit of those emotions. Okay, here's what God's saying. God's asking us to consider that perhaps our unanswered questions is not the cause of our disbelief. God is asking us to consider that perhaps our unanswered questions are merely smokescreen 
that allows us to prolong our disbelief and look humble while doing it. I don't know how to say that without making us feel a little bit of what I think Moses felt. But if God's word is true, at the end of the day, our problem, like Moses, is not a curious mind. It's a dead heart. And like Moses, unless God pursues us and has mercy toward us, no person on earth will be able to respond to God's call, which leads us to our last point. Point three, he loves ordinary rebels. So we've seen a tons of things in this passage about who God is. Okay, one, he doesn't call people who are competent. He, he calls people who realize they're incompetent to follow him. Two, he loves our intellectual inquiries, but he is wrathful towards our relish hearts. Okay, and here in the last part of our passage, we see a few other things about God. Let me just point out one uh, that's not directly related to this third point, is that God loves to relate to his people through a mediator, okay, through an in-between. Where do we see that? Well, one, in the fact that he called Moses and he chose Moses to be his representative, his mediator between him and his people, right? But also here we see God calling Aaron because Moses was stubborn. Okay, look at how Aaron is described in verse 14. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Now, why did God have to emphasize Aaron, your brother, the Levite? As if Moses would be confused. You know, Aaron, last name, please. Of course, there is one Aaron, your brother. Why, why emphasize the Levite? Because Levites, right, in the Old Testament, were a tribe of priests. There were priests whose job is to intermediate between God and his people eventually, if you read the Old Testament. And these people will eventually be the ones that perform sacrificial offerings on behalf of God's people for their sin, to purify them. They're the intermediary. Okay, so God loves to relate with his people through a mediator. But here's something else about God that we see in this last part of the passage. But I think it ends up becoming more of a question. Okay. Follow along with me. Do you, do you see how Moses rejected God over and over and over and over, but yet God never rejected him? Do you see how no matter how much Moses begged God to leave him alone, God never left? Isn't it good that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers? I mean, after verse 14, the readers are going, Okay, Moses has got it coming now. He's rejected God five times. God's finally angry. Surely verse 15 will be the end of Moses. Surely verse 15, God's going to send fire down from the heaven. And then you read verse 15, and God's wrath was not actualized upon Moses. Instead, it was the opposite. God remained patient with Moses, gave him a PR staff so that Aaron could speak on Moses' behalf. And here's the question. Where did all that wrath go? God obviously felt it in verse 14. It says so, but he didn't follow through with it. Where did it go? And then, follow along with me here before we get to the answer. Read at the end of the passage. There's this really weird ending in, in verse 17. The, the passage seems like it should end in verse 16. That's kind of where the natural end should be. But then there's this one weird verse. After all is said and done, God made sure to remind Moses of what? His staff. <laughs> Before Moses left, God said, by the way, Moses, don't forget your staff. Why is God so fixated on this staff? What is the big deal? And we'll see why it's so important to God. It's so important to God for everyone to know that his redemption work will come through this despicable means. Why? Well, 
Who is it that will eventually come and deliver God's people? Did that guy come in a bifrost beam? Who is it that's going to be the true mediator? Who's going to be our true high priest? Jesus Christ, who the Bible claims to be God himself in flesh, who came to pursue us. And how did he come to us as a baby born in a despicable place? As a person who took on ordinary career as a carpenter, who was treated as a despicable person, hung on a despicable cross. What does Isaiah 53 say? There is no majesty in him that we should adore him. He was despised by man. He was a man of sorrows. Where did all that wrath go? It went to God himself when he died for Moses on that cross. God was able to be patient with Moses because God himself will absorb all the wrath Moses deserves. He pursued Moses not just up to the fifth question. He pursued Moses up to a cross. Do you see now why God is so fixated on this despicable stick? Because he was pointing to the despicable Roman cross. See, this communicates two things at least. What an avenger-like bifrost beam could never communicate about God. One, it communicates God's self-sufficiency. He doesn't need powerful weapons to aid him in his battles. He wins them himself. Tie his hand behind his back. Cross him. Nail him to a cross. He will still win. He is the king of kings. And two, it communicates just how deeply he loves his people. You see, Moses merely risked his life to save God's people. God gave his. Look, at this moment, what's happening? The gospel is being preached to you. You are hearing about God's redemptive plan. And it seems like, by virtue of the fact that you're sitting here right now, it's safe to assume God is, one way or another, calling you. And you're going to have questions. And that's good. Keep asking them. Keep inquiring. Email me all of your questions. And I'll forward them to Gray. (laughs) Don't feel demonized that you have intellectual pursuits about the Christian faith. Of course you would. Your finite mind is trying to wrap itself around an infinite being. Of course you'll have questions. But as you ask them, at the very least, what this passage begs you to consider is this. Consider the fact that your questions may not be your main issue, just like it wasn't for Moses. So I encourage you to ask those questions. Do so, but do so with a degree of self-introspection. Ask yourself, why am I really asking these questions? What's behind it? Will I really receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and follow him throughout my whole life if this one question is answered? Is Is that really the issue? Two, as you do so, do it prayerfully. Because at the end of the day, human voices, including your own, can only reach your head. Only God's voice can reach your heart. Third, go to his word. Go to the Bible, where his voice may be heard with your eyes in his written word. And if you're here today, and you have received Christ as Lord and Savior... Please remember, you didn't get this far because you held on to him. 
You got this far because he's been holding on to you. Did you slip up? Don't excuse it. Confront it. But don't let it crush you. All the wrath you deserve was absorbed by himself. There is no condemnation left. It's finished. So get up and follow him again. And if you feel unworthy of this calling, if you feel like God chose the wrong person, then I encourage you to memorize Exodus chapter 4, verse 17, our last passage. Drill what God said to Moses deeply into your souls. God told Moses, don't forget your stick. (laughs) Don't forget your ordinary stick. And let me show you a little bit of who I am by doing something unexpected with it. Will you be able to persevere in this gigantic task of following God through the rest of your life, Christian? Yes, you will. Why? Because he's got this, not you. So get up. He never left. Get up, follow him, and give your king the reward for his suffering. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible, powerful king you are that even when seemingly powerless, that even when all the cards were stacked against your victory, that when your hands were not only tied behind your back but nailed unto a cross, you used such a despicable means to accomplish your redemptive plan. We praise you, King of Kings, God of glory, powerful, utmost majestic. And what an amazing reality it is that this majestic king came down and pursued us and will not allow the people in whom you have loved for yourself fall into the depths of their sin and receive your just wrath, but rather you took your just wrath upon yourself for us and died on a cross so that you may redeem a people sanctify a people, grow a people, mature a people, hold fast to a people who will stumble our whole lives until we see the finish line and eventually embrace a people with your nail-ridden hands so that you will receive all glory, all power, all honor, all majesty. To Christ be the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.